1: Thank you all for uh, being with us for Political Rewind uh, today. Glad to have you listening and those of you who are watching on Facebook Live watching uh, Political Rewind. We have a terrific panel lined up to talk about uh, many issues that are in the news, political news today. Just for a moment or two before I introduce the panel, and we do, I want to make a clarification about a statement that I made on the show yesterday that a number of you, not a lot, but enough of you that I think it's worth saying something about, uh, called me out on. And I think called me out correctly on. Yesterday, we were talking about the President's State of the Union Address. And I said that I didn't want to do serious fact-checking because we get consumed by fact-checking when we do that. And a number of you – and I said it really in a bad way. I mean I just did not articulate it particularly well because what a a number of you who've contacted me, some of you very politely, others not so much, uh, was that you thought I was saying we don't want to hold politicians accountable for what they say. And and I want to tell you that is not what I think this show is all about. We frequently – Uh, do in fact look at what politicians have said, are saying, and um, point out when they're not being accurate, uh, honest, whatever. And in fact, yesterday, when this all came up, I had just pointed out that President Trump, who talked about record economic growth, was flat out wrong. And I pointed to the fact that even Jimmy Carter, during the so-called years of malaise, had better economic growth than President Trump suggests he has uh, this at this current time. I also pointed out that uh, when he awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom to Rush Limbaugh, I thought it was important to put it in the context of the fact that people like Mother Teresa, uh, Rosa Parks, have been awarded that medal. And I mentioned some of the bigoted statements that over the years Rush Limbaugh has made. So let me make sure that I say exactly what I think about what Political Rewind is for all of you who listen so faithfully to the show. Yes, fact checking is important. But if we had tried to fact check the entire uh, Trump impeachment, I'm sorry, uh, State of the Union speech on Monday night, that's all we would have done for the entire show. And I don't think that's what Political Rewind is. There is a reason that newspapers like the Washington Post and the New York Times have analysts who look at the larger picture of what's going on politically and then fact-checking teams who, in fact, separate from the analysis, do tick off all of the uh, things that are true or not true about what they're hearing from various politicians. It is a time-consuming and laborious process. So... Our goal here is to emphasize analysis from the terrific panelists who come in here every day. And that's what I hope we do really well. And at the same time, over the six years we've been on the air, there are many examples of times in which we have, in fact, called into account political leaders who have said things that simply aren't correct. And in a polite and respectful way, we frequently, in fact, Call out panelists on the show when we think they're making comments that aren't accurate. So all that said, um, I apologize for my muddled way of expressing myself yesterday. And I don't blame some of you for uh, contacting me to say that you were disappointed that we didn't want to hold politicians accountable. I hope this makes it clearer to you. Uh, As I always say, if you're still not sure what I'm talking about, you can email me at bniget.com at gpb.org. You can tweet, you can put up Facebook comments, and we always take a look at what you have to say. I would ask that you be as respectful as the panelists are when they talk about issues on the show. That isn't always the case, and there's nothing I can do about that, but uh, respect is something we value highly on Political Rewind. All right, enough of that. Let's get to the news of the day. Kevin Riley is here with us. He is the boss, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We're really glad to have you with us Thursdays on Political Rewind. Thanks for joining us, Kevin.
2: It's great to be here, and I'm going to be careful not to say anything muddled myself, but I can't
1: make any promises on that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, neither can I, (laughs) clearly. Right next to you, for those who are watching on Facebook Live, is Brian Robinson. Brian is a government affairs specialist, a former uh, Communications Director for Governor Nathan Deal Doing so, I, You have some political clients these yeah. days, but it isn't what you're focused on primarily.
3: Now, Robinson Republic is a communications firm. We do public affairs communications, some public relations, some political communication, So it's a grab bag. Give me a call if you find yourself in <laughs> need <laughs> of these services.
1: I should have vetted my comments through you earlier. Uh, <laughs> Mo Ivory is back with us. We're always glad to have you Thank here, Mo. Mo, among other things, is a political activist who works with Fair Fight Action and who clearly is proud of her affiliation with Georgia State University which yes. those of you can uh, watching can see she's wearing in bright blue today Hi mo
0: Yeah hello and uh, my opinions are my own um, <laughs> yeah. but uh, and I love facts
1: yeah, yeah. thank you <laughs> uh, you know it's great to have all of you here but today we have a double shot from the AJC James Salzer who knows more about the Georgia State budget than many of the legislators at the Capitol, James, we're so glad you're here. When I say that, Brian Robinson is nodding. We know that there are legislators who come to you at times and say, James, can you please explain to me what the heck is going on with the budget? Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. I will add that during the
3: deal administration, we had a transition when the budget director moved on to another state job. And the governor gave serious consideration to asking James to be – the state budget director. Oh, my my God. God. There's, you know, just
1: completely polluted your reputation (laughs) right on our air. That would have turned out poorly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I I want to talk about the budget, uh, and I want to get into some of the numbers that are of concern to a lot of people out there. But before we do, I, I do think, James, we ought to start by talking about the kind of extraordinary politics that are going on around the budget right now. Um, I'm going to start with you, and I want everybody to get in on this. So we know that there's been a clash between particularly the Speaker and House Republican leaders and Governor Kemp over um, the cuts that the governor wants in the budget. So as a starting point, before we even talk about this escalation which took place yesterday, why are they clashing so uh, in such a strong way about the budget the governor wants them to, to uh, bring to him? Because
4: I think, um, I mean, it's it's been going on since August
1: um, when the governor
4: announced um, that he wanted spending cuts. And, you know, August is, I think when he announced it, it was something like six weeks after that budget went into effect. And it was, you know, three or four months after the legislature passed it. So I think they were just taken aback by the fact that all of a sudden he's saying, you know, we need to make these cuts um, and he didn't say it at the time, but it is as it turned out, his, the big item he wanted, the big ask that he was going to ask for in January was the $2,000 teacher pay raise yeah. that would make his campaign promise true that he made in 2018, that he was going to increase.
1: The uh, so, pay. Kevin, part of what James is saying also is I think in August when he announced 4 percent cuts in that existing budget that was already uh, being used, 4 uh, percent then – six percent in the budget they have to pass for the next fiscal year which starts in the summer uh he also didn't bring legislators in to consult with him on this he just flat out announced it
2: right i mean one of the things uh that james has reported is that really only slightly less than a fourth of the overall state budget can really be affected by what 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 they're talking about so they're being asked to cut that four percent and six percent from that amount and I mean, they were surprised. I think is the key thing because, I mean, if you work in the Georgia legislature, in particular the House, that's your that's your big thing, right? James, the budget. I mean, the control right. and the opportunity to shape state policy through funding is is what gives you your power.
4: Yeah, and you, and you also have. I mean, you understand that, like, for instance, the uh, House Budget Chairman Terry England and Senate Chairman Jack Hill those guys were, those guys do not, are not part-time legislators. Yeah. I mean, they are following everything that's going on in the economy, what's going on, you know, they're looking at everything in, that's going on in Georgia. And so, um, to them, I mean, it's like, that's their, that's their baby when they pass that budget. That is really important to them. And they, once it's passed, they, they're they still, you know, they're still working on it, talking about it, um, you know, looking at what's going to happen the next year. And so, they, and they, and during the session and in the off session. I mean, they're they're entertaining people who are like agency heads mm-hmm. or people who work for agencies, as the governor is um, talking about their needs, talking about what's going on and and where they need um, help or where they don't. You know, where they can take a cut. But usually, it's you know they need help for something, and so um, you know, for him to then go and all. I mean, the the reaction was you know, instantly I mean, was no, not happy, no, instantly not happy. No, yeah. And then, and then since then, you know, they've been unhappy saying, thinking, and I have no idea whether this is, whether, you know, this is, um, um, you know, how, how would you agree this is accurate, but that, that the governor's, um, that the governor um, directed agency people not to- To cooperate. To, to cooperate. Yeah. And again, I don't, you know, I I have no information to, that, that is, you know, that I kn- that I know for fact that that's true. But that's the feeling is that they're not getting cooperation, and so that's kind of added to the antagonism.
1: So Mo, um, part of this becomes an issue. I think it's fair to say. I mean, some people would call these cuts draconian. I don't know if that's an overstatement or not. A couple people are already Salzer's already uh, shaking his head no. Robinson's just sort of eh. I don't know. Uh, but Mo. If there is no question that aspects of this budget are going to be detrimental to a number of constituencies around the state of Georgia.
0: Sure. And and uh, you hear a lot of conversation about um, the folks that are going to be most hurt are actually uh, people that voted for him and are a huge part of his base. Rural, um, rural Georgia, perhaps. Absolutely. That's exactly who I'm talking about. And so it's sort of, you know, um, the the – Press rollout of all this has been so awful um, in the sense of how people feel about what's happening. You know, you have the governor saying we're going to do this, and then you have his whole entire party um, having a problem with what they're doing. We have this break. A lot of people don't even understand what the break really means, what's going to be discussed. But what they do hear about are things that they thought were going to be changed. You know, that there were going to be more, you know, less hospital closures, more doctors being sent to rural areas. There were not going to be education. When you think about the um, the programs where high school students can go to colleges and he wants to take money out of that, you know That's a real blow to lower income communities who depend on the ability to send their students to You know take these college courses while they're still in high school And I have children that go to Maynard Jackson High School who have taken advantage uh-huh. of those programs, right? I know there are friends who come into our colleges, and they're already um, Sophomores or juniors because of these things so um, a lot of the things that he said during the campaign to get elected or sort of seem to not be a part of what he has put Forth in the budget.
1: So, Brian, uh, I want to restate, before we get into this latest escalation yesterday, uh, something and, and I'd like you to uh, weigh in on this. Uh, James made an important point here. Part of what's going on between especially the House leaders and the governor is different agendas for how they want money uh, spent this year, James points out. The governor made this commitment to give teachers $5,000 raises Uh, when he became governor. He already has uh, ponied up $3,000 of that in the budget that we're living under right now. So now he said, I don't even want to wait another year. I want the extra $2,000 now, which puts uh, constraints on the rest of the spending. Whereas House leaders have been pushing back on that because they're committed to uh, another income tax cut which they think uh is, is helpful for business in the state but clearly helpful for them in their in their politics as they all run for re-election so this part of this is is just that a, a fight over what priorities house leaders and a governor want
3: a lot to unpack there bill okay <laughs> yeah, <a lot> to, <laughs> i think some of this is leverage I, I don't know that there is a huge push or desire amongst the Republican caucuses in or Caucasian in, <laughs> in, <laughs> I, I defer in to, both houses. <laughs> yeah, in both houses are that hungry about getting another tax cut. You'll recall we did this in twenty eighteen, did the quarter point cut. Mm-hmm. Not a single Republican legislator really campaigned on that issue. It was, wasn't in any of the mail pieces. It wasn't something that voters talked about. And, in fact, internal polling showed that voters didn't care that much about it, which makes sense because the average Georgia household got $47 in savings from that cut. This would be an additional $47. And— it's not making an impact because people aren't seeing it. Their, you know, their paychecks are being eaten up by insurance costs, premiums, etc. So they're not getting this windfall. It's not something they noticed. The way you noticed the national tax cut earlier that same year in 2018, people saw that uh, it was a significant difference. So I don't know that it delivers much bang for the buck, and it's going to add to uh, the cuts. It'd be another 550 million dollars, which is a huge, huge bite out of a 28 billion dollar. Budget. So I think it's a leverage point. What the speaker said on the teacher pay raises is, hey, look, that wasn't my campaign promise. That yeah. was yours. Well,
1: right. Mm. Yeah. You we'll, know, we'll what are you going mm. to give
3: me? What are you going to give yeah. me for me to give you that? Because like $2,000, we're talking about rural cuts. A $2,000 pay raise, which will make it five overall in three years, that is rural development because much of that's
1: being shot directly into rural economies where $2,000 is a really big deal. Okay, let well, me, Kevin, bring this up. to to speed now. I've teased this long enough. Yesterday, yesterday, this fight between the governor's office, and again, James, primarily the House side, right? Okay. Yesterday, uh, David Ralston said, we're not going to be able to resolve this fight while we're in session. And he did something rather remarkable in an election year. He called a suspension, a halt to the 40-day clock for, what, eight days mm-hmm. now plus eight yeah. nine days um so they could presumably work on the the budget i assume try to get together with the governor's people figure things out but in an election year that kind of halt is pretty remarkable they all want to get out of the capital and go back raise their campaign funds and campaign uh for, for their reelections. and then the governor sends out uh this letter uh In which he, I'm not going to read all of it, but his people say the governor's budget proposals are conservative and balanced, reflecting our values and visions as a state. Uh, His budget fully funds public uh, education, provides long overdue pay raises for teachers. But then here's the pertinent line. uh, While we respect the legislature's purview, the governor does not need a lesson in conservatism from a man who brokered a deal with Democrats just last week for political Gamesmanship. And what he's talking about there, of course, is there was this move by the speaker and Democrats working together to try to create a bill that would uh, would change the way in which we're voting, especially for Senate seat number two. We've talked about it on the show and uh, the, gov- the the speaker was trying to give some leverage to Doug Collins. But for Kemp to introduce that here. The governor doesn't need lessons in conservatism well that was an upping the ante
2: well I think it's absolutely clear now that the Republicans have been so dominant in the state government now they you know they're tired of fighting with Democrats and now they're gonna fight (laughs) with each other right but but I want to come back to Brian I mean you were part of a of a governor's you know staff and you rolled out budget priorities you roll you know you handled conflicts with the legislature What's your assessment of of why and how Kemp's doing here? Why do this?
3: Actually, I think the way that Kemp is managing this is really more of a uh, reverting to the norms of old. This is what it was like with Governor Miller and and Speaker Murphy. There was obviously a lot of headbutting between Glenn Richardson and Sonny Perdue, both which was both those are intra party uh, collisions there. So I think the deal years were actually the anomaly and. Here's how he did it. And I'm not saying this is a, a model for all governors and speakers to follow, but it worked for Deal. Every single day, Deal's chief of staff texted the budget committee chairman in both houses every day of the year, not just during session. They were in constant communication with the speaker and the lieutenant governor. And when there was something tough on the, on the they would bring him in on the front end and be like, all right guys, we all gotta bite the bullet on here. I need, I need skin of the game. What are we going to have to do to get buy-in? Now, that may come with Kemp and the General Assembly over the next few years. But any time that you start having to cut, you're going to have a fight. And the governor is in a tight spot here because we are a balanced budget state. He can't make money fall out of the sky. It's going to be tough choices no matter what. And he can't do anything that's going to be a clean shot. He's going to be attacked no matter what he does to balance the budget. And so I actually do feel a lot of sympathy for him because I've been in I was, you know, in that office during the
1: Great Recession. I mean, these cuts are child's play compared to what (laughs) I had to put up with. (laughs) James, you're nodding at just about everything Brian's saying. Yeah, Yeah,
4: this is my fourth um, budget cut session, I guess, um, in the 30 years I covered the legislature. And it's. These cuts are nothing like the Great Recession, like the um, dot com recession, like the uh, what was ninety one recession uh, or ninety recession. I forgot which one it was, but anyway, early earned decade. but the 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 uh, the the cuts, I mean in the Great Recession involved furloughing teachers, eliminating, I mean, getting rid of teachers, getting rid of you know hundreds, if not thousands of state employees. Um, so, um, there's, there's no comparison between the two. All right. And, um, and he's right. And he also is right that this is completely an anomaly. I mean, excuse me, the, the deal administration was complete anomaly. I mean, they worked together in a way that. I've never seen. And, you know, even even when I covered politics in Texas, it was nothing Uh, like
1: this. the governor would argue that he is uh, taking strong action to prevent a slowdown in the economy. And there are the credit rating agencies seem to think that that's not a bad move. So we have to give him that. Right. But I want to talk a little bit more for a minute, at least about the politics of this, Mo, even as we're sitting here talking about the budget. Uh, Kevin Riley's employee, Greg Bluestein, <laughs> has filed a piece on AJC.com. I'll read you a couple of paragraphs. You can respond. Georgia Democrats are seizing on Governor Brian Kemp's quote, extreme, unquote, proposed budget cuts to try to boost legislative candidates in competitive 2020 races. The Democratic Party of Georgia on Thursday launched a, quote, don't cut Georgia's future, unquote, campaign that highlighted Kemp's proposals to cut about $500 million from the state's budget over two years. So, Democrats trying to take advantage of the turmoil that seems to be going on over the budget that Republicans are fighting about.
0: Sure. Well, I mean, it would only be, you know, smart for them to point out the things that are actually happening and um, to, you know, strengthen up um, the base around it. And so I think it's the you know right move for Democrats to do that. But I think the way that um, uh, the governor is behaving, especially when you read that last statement there, you know, just really lines up with the, the sort of Trump politics and tone that is is evident in you know his administration or in in his attitude and so i i think that to sort of compare it to all of the um um, other sessions that have had you know very strong budget um, concerns and deeper cuts and all that, it's not the same because our country is completely different and this is all being lined up for what's hap- going to happen in 2020 so I think that tone I don't think that he's going to come forward with a tone of bipartisanship or a tone of even working together like you said that governor uh, Kemp, I mean governor deal used to go and text in the morning and talk in that way and I just don't think that's the tone that he has set um, from the very beginning that he would do that and it's more about politics and the way that he wants to be viewed and I think that he's just opening up the door you know I don't think the um, the Republicans have had a la- a good last couple of weeks period altogether and yet
1: and yet Kevin Riley according to your poll the last comment before we go to the break and yet according to your most recent poll Governor Kemp is at 60 percent approval rating and he didn't get there with just Republican support in Georgia
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's true, although uh, while the poll was taken after he announced some of this initial uh, budget-cutting stuff, uh, there's been a lot of stuff in the news since then, so we'll see if that sort of approval rating holds
1: up. Let me do this. Let me get to a break. And then when we come back, I I would love to go over just a couple of the areas uh, with you, James, and get everybody else involved where where we think there's going to be some pain if the budget is uh, uh, passed and sign quite the way Governor Kemp wants it to. We'll do that after we pause for these messages on Political Rewind. Kevin Riley, Mo Ivory, Brian Robinson, uh, James Salzer all in the studio uh, today. We're gonna go over just a few of the areas that people have talked about uh, um, most particularly in terms of budget cuts. Before we do, uh, the standard uh, disclaimer that I always want to give when we do budget talks is uh, GPB is a state agency. We receive funding from the state largely for things like infrastructure, for our education programs here. Uh, I I do want to always say that the programming here, political rewind on second thought, uh, and the staffing of those programs does not come from state money. We're all... Donor-supported, and by the way, thank you, donors, mm-hmm. for keeping us going. All right. With that said, James, a, a few of the areas that people have pointed out that they're concerned about, Mo mentioned rural Georgia, that, and so we we can talk more about that. But mental health services is getting a lot of attention. Tell us about that. Right. So um, we had a we had a week of budget
4: hearings um, a couple weeks ago, where every agency, the director came in, and the the two things, the two takeaways that were most kind of startling, one of them was definitely um, mental health. Um, the, the, uh, the, the agency directors do an impact statement kind of thing um, when they present their proposal. And um, it was particularly alarming um, because essentially the director said that, um, initially said that, um, cutting um, some of these mental health programs could lead to more suicide, to more people wandering the street, uh, you know, kind of thing, um, and not, not getting treatment um, down the road. Because the, the, the population that needs um, drug treatment and mental health services is growing, um, she said, and, you know, we, there's just no way to say, well, we're going we're gonna to reduce some of these programs and then treat more people. All right. Um, and I was going to say the other one. The other one, um, and and he's a little bit freer to talk because he's an elected official. But was Gary Black's testimony from, Agri- from culture, Agriculture, where, um, and I, and I've, I reported on this in I think September or October. But for the legislators to hear that, for instance, we're going to have uh, we will have fewer like food inspections, yeah. uh, food safety inspections. Um, you know, is like what you know we have more restaurants more yeah. you know as you said we have more supermarkets we have more uh, uh, not Elevens, but you know uh, uh, other places where they sell food and um, and and uh, we're gonna have we're not gonna be able to uh to fill these vacant positions. Uh, and,
1: and while we're listening, just one more quick one, and then we'll open it up, is uh, criminal justice, mm-hmm. uh, where we're uh, cutting back on the number of public defender slots that are available, but increasing funding for prosecutorial mm-hmm. initiatives in the state. Right, right. But the, although, you
4: know, politically that fits in. Oh, you know, sure. I mean, I, mean, I mean, politically that's... He, he's got it. He's, he ran on a campaign of right. getting tough right. on crime and particularly uh, gang-related stuff. And... Um, um, and, I, and I in looking at the budget, I'm not sure how um, how much um, the public defenders would I mean, how, how that would affect them.
1: Okay, okay. Um, all right, everybody, yeah, I, jump on anything you want, Mo. You've yeah, got, you've got I, I your wanna, hand up, go. Because
0: <laughs> I want to talk to Brian about this. You know, um, Governor uh, <laughs> I'm not Deal... So popularly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Governor Deal had such a sweeping criminal reform yeah. you know, and is touted for that. And when we talk about this criminal, uh, you know, the cuts in bringing more prosecutors and less defenders seems to go against, you know, everything that Governor well, Deal tried yeah. to do to, you know, reform criminal Accountability justice. Accountability courts sure, being a prime sure. example of Sure, and and in the, um, you know, all shrouded over the national and state statistics, that crime is decreasing. So, you know, that hardcore, you know, I'm going to go in and I'm going to do this, you know, we know who that affects. It affects black men, it affects black communities, black families. So it's really important for people to understand when they're reading this you know, what and compare it to what we have had in that area in progress yeah, in the eight years before.
3: Look you're not going to find anybody who's a bigger champion of the accountability courts the veterans courts that the drug courts that Governor Deal championed and put into place, I will say, by unanimous margins, many years in the General Assembly. Again. I would
2: say that that is one of the most remarkable things I have ever seen politically, that Deal was able to do that stuff, because the arguments to make those changes, setting aside funding and everything else, were nuanced, which almost never works in politics, you know, the simple, straightforward, messages tend to win out and Deal over time was able to convince virtually everybody that these things were worth doing. And, you know, no matter how you feel about It from the communications office. He did overcome shortcomings in that And no matter what you think about it, I mean, I get there are two sides of that and some people would argue differently. Yeah, because it
0: wasn't perfect, but right. yeah. And but,
2: I, but to pull that off, and then Kemp sent a pretty strong message, right? That, no, 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 that's not my priority.
3: Look, it wasn't perfect. I don't. I don't know what that means, but I can tell you this: within a couple of years, the number of African American men, the group you just referenced yourself, the number of them going into state prisons went b- down by twenty percent. I mean, that's a remarkable number. That's a, that saves lives. Mm-hmm. That keeps families together, but it also keeps those those offenders from becoming career criminals. Mm-hmm. It saves taxpayers over twenty thousand dollars per head, and so and that's my argument on this. Um, I am making a point, is that the accountability courts don't. Lead to more crime. You don't you're not putting criminals back on the streets to to Recommit crimes you are giving them a chance to reform. You're giving them the the wraparound services to To get on the right path and you're look it is so inefficient and expensive to put somebody who is a nonviolent offender into prison It only leads to bad outcomes so there's a smarter way to do it deal put us on the right path and Here's my argument: During budget cutting years, we should be doubling down on accountability courts and drug courts and veterans because it's going to save us in the other areas of the budget.
1: Okay, that's a yeah. interesting. I'm
4: going to say I don't think it was that subtle mes- messaging because because it, it, it the, what Governor Deal did was going to be supported by Democrats yeah. because it was because it was um, a more humane policy or or whatever for whatever reasons. But, but as a Republican, if you say, we're going to save the state a lot of money, they've been watching uh, corrections spending just go through the roof in the last uh, 20 years. I mean, we're spending over a billion dollars um, – excuse me, I'm sorry, over $100 million a year just – to house inmates in private prisons, so yes. so it's not you know they that's a very easy message I would think if I'm if I'm a, you know for Republican legislators. Can so I say
3: I, you know, as a point of historical uh, reference? I think it's important and clarifying. When Deal came into office in 2011, we were in the, the depths of the Great Recession. There was no money. We were still cutting what had been cut to the bone. We were cutting through bone at that juncture, and. The Department of Corrections came to Deal during the transition and said, our prisons are teeming. They are crowded. We've got to build a new prison. It'll be $265 million. And Deal said, no. Yeah. There's a better way. We never spent that $265 million. We never built that other prison. And show me where we've had this crime explosion because we didn't put more people in that new $265 million prison.
1: prison. So – um. A couple things, uh, uh, James. Um, First of all, you know, one thing, we we talked about the fact that after the governor announced last summer, in August, his 4 percent cut immediately. Right. Right. the speaker said, I want to have hearings with agency heads now. Let's accelerate our timetable for hearings. Let's not wait till right. the first week after the session starts. And that's when we believe the governor instructed agency heads not to cooperate. Right. right? I, I, in those hearings, I was saying in general. Oh, in ge- g- all right. But yeah. but here's the point I really want to make. Mm-hmm. You have a story in today's newspaper that tells us just how significant the budget hearings that legislators have are because of what can sometimes be revealed when agency heads come and talk right. about their departments. Right. What's that story today? So
4: um, so uh, I reported in, I think it was October, um, kind of what some of the proposals were for how they're going to deal with employees, what they were, who were they're going to lay off or who they were going to, um, jobs they were not going to um, fill. And I mentioned kind of somewhere in the story I mentioned, oh, they're going to cut the pay of um, of. Uh, educators in in state prisons, um, and then yesterday uh, at a hearing, um, the um, commissioner of corrections um, talked about the fact that they had some people in instruction at, uh, at um, in state prisons that were being paid six figure salaries, <laughs> and some of them were retired from the public uh, education system, which means they were getting a pension. And they were getting six-figure salaries, and his line was that I think caught everybody. You know, kind of drove home the point was we, we, uh, we hand out GEDs and technical and technical instruction. We don't hand out PhDs, and that kind of like resonated that they were paying twice what a uh, 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 the average Georgia public school teacher makes to. Um, people that were yeah. essentially in instruction yeah
1: after. that's mo you know uh, it's a remarkable uh, it's, figure that yeah. suddenly comes uh, to light and and you know you could good for Governor Kemp for wanting to increase the salary of public school teachers of course. across the state <laughs> but when you compare it to what and he uh, and he and the commissioner both recommended that that those salaries be cut okay fine good
0: they, good. they recommended that the hundred and ten thousand dollars salaries be cut well that's mm-hmm. a good thing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that, that conversation is not even one I knew about until we just started talking about that and uh, your article this morning. But it's hard to understand why you're thinking about cutting and all of these programs that are so important. And then you're having conversations with the heads, but that doesn't come up as an item that was automatically going to be cut. I mean, why hadn't that come up? I'm wondering why that had never come up before, as part of the Department of Corrections overview. Uh, six-figure salaries for GEDs, but the teachers in public schools are getting five thousand. I'm just not sure. I understand why that has never come up before.
1: All right. Um, so let's go back. We're we're going to watch your reporting on the budget. And you said,
0: and and the budget for the Department of Corrections is, is out the roof.
1: Yeah. It's a,
4: it's about mil- uh, It's about a billion dollars a year. Um, for corrections, but again, it's it's been kind of stable uh, during the deal years, um, and and uh, you know hasn't hasn't gone up that much. But there, because so much other thing, many other things in the state budget are formula driven, like education and 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 uh, Medicaid. Um, corrections actually had the biggest hit. Of all agencies, yeah, um, and it was interesting to listen to the commissioner talk about, you know, how they were going to handle it.
1: So, um, uh, before we finish talking about the budget, uh, Brian, I just wonder if this pause in the session, this eight-day pause, you would agree? I, I, I think that it's unusual in an election year for legislators to want to extend their session. They'd like to get out if they could by St. Patrick's Day because they cannot raise money while they're in session. And they're limited in how much campaigning they can do. So, first of all, I that's probably I'm I'm right. I think about that. Yeah. Well, particularly. particularly these days,
3: there was a time when our primaries were in the summer, in July. Now they're in May because of federal court intervention having to do with how long you have to mail in ballots and stuff. So now is a very short window of time that they have if they have primary opposition to raise money, wage a campaign. Oh, and also, these guys are part-time legislators. When the bell rings at sine die on the last day of session, they got to get up and go back to work at their real jobs that pays for their mortgages. So they've got a lot going on in a very compressed amount of time. So I'm sure there's a lot of groaning and consternation about this, but it is a fact of life and a budget-cutting time because – you're going to have to have a lot of people at the table. If you try to shove something through without cons- without a lot of buy-in, it, you, you run the risk of having a budget voted down on the floor, which nobody wants to see. That's not what usually happens. We usually get very high majorities for the budget. So I think it's probably wise. I know the governor wasn't happy about it. He pushed back on it to, to some degree. But the legislature is going to, you know, flex this muscle that they have because it's the muscle they have. Yep. You know, the governor of the state of Georgia is a very powerful constitutional governor. So the legislature doesn't have the powers that others do in other states.
4: This is where they can call the shots. All right. Yeah, they, yeah I was going to say they, they uh, I don't know, if, I, if my 30 years, I don't think they've ever come close to voting down on budgets. It's, it's, yeah. So, the, and, and it, it also is not, unusual for them to take time off to work on the budget but they just in usually do it year. well even in election really? year but they do okay. it but they do it later they usually usually the house has passed a budget senate's passed a version of it and then they take time off to work on it um it's but this period at in this early in the year it is unusual
1: kevin before we take another break uh there is also always this to say about a budget budget where they're trying to cut uh, and and even if the cuts aren't draconian, uh, even, they are significant. And as Speaker Ralston pointed out the last time he was on Political Rewind, uh, it is one thing to say for the governor to say, "Yeah, we need major cuts in the budget." It's another thing for each legislator to look at how lines in the budget are going to be received by their constituents in their districts back home, which is where rubber really meets the road on what you're willing to accept as a legislator.
2: Well, yeah, and I think this has become clear in James' reporting. That's really what has some of those legislators ticked off. They worked on a specific thing, in some cases for years. It's an important initiative. They've talked about it, and now it's on the chopping block.
1: All right. Last question, James. Is this Uh, for a while, I actually wondered if they were genuinely going to take this time off or whether this was a maneuver to try to get the governor's attention and say, you better get serious about this. Obviously, I was wrong. They're doing it. Do we believe, do you believe that they're going to use this period productively and actually try to resolve problems? Or is this still part of the maneuvering between the governor's office and the House? I mean,
4: that's a a good question. And and I have to say they are they are having not only the House, the Senate, which right. doesn't vote on the budget until the end of the House passes it. They're all having uh, hearings next week. Now those will be, I'm sure, heavily covered and, and um so that's a good it's a good point. I, I think but I, I think they are working on the budget. Okay. I don't think this is just show.
1: All right. I gotta get to a break. Uh, Tom Faust points out there are some of you who have been um, pointing out That, uh, who are listening and are tweeting to us, and James, we can say it very quickly. Uh, the governor wants pay raises, but there's also been tinkering with teacher pensions, which in the long run could have a very negative impact on those very same people. Right, but I think—
4: uh, But they're not going to do uh, it. I don't think they're going
1: to do it. Yeah, they're, this is not the year you want to mess They've around with They've been talking about that for years. Yeah. But, of course, their <laughs> pensions are <laughs> another another. Yeah. Right. right? Yes, <laughs> and their pensions are. All right, we got a couple of other uh, legislative issues that I really want to talk about when we come back uh, uh, from a break. Uh, James, I hope later in the session, as this is all playing out— Stay with us, but I can't wait to talk to you later in the session about the budget as well. Uh, We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Uh, Kevin Riley, uh, you know, we knew that a legislative session couldn't possibly go by without a religious liberty bill of one sort or another being introduced. It's just – The uh, conservative legislators are completely incapable of pulling back from something like that. And now we have one. Uh, Marty Harbin uh, has in the Senate has introduced legislation that would protect faith based organizations uh, who decide they do not want to uh, um, let uh, same sex couples adopt children. One of the larger impacts of this measure is that I think there's a great appetite, certainly on the House side, to pass a bill that will make it easier for families to adopt because of the huge number of Georgia children who are in foster care. And last year and in other sessions, everything that comes along that deals with the LGBTQ community not being able to uh, adopt from faith-based organizations has stopped this from um, happening. And I think it's fair to say that... Uh, Ralston and others in the House are unhappy about it, but here we go again. Uh, It's going to be an issue, and and we're going to have to see how it all works out.
2: Yeah, well, the, the legislature's tried for a while now, right, to keep passing legislation to make it easier to adopt children. And then that gives the opening to some people to attach something like this to it. I mean, Ralston's been pretty clear, I think, that he wants to push forward this legislation and get it done. that makes it easier to adopt and will probably keep anything else from happening. But uh, we've seen stranger things, right, James? Right,
1: like last year. abortion. <laughs> last, abortion. Year, abortion. abortion yeah. Yeah. last year, abortion, of course. Last year, a bill to virtually outlaw abortion. Mo, um, this is a play to the base, pure and simple.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, we've been through um, what happens when these religious bills come up and how um, automatically you start talking about the economy with the um, film industry and how this will affect people wanting to stay here and work in the industry and bring their business here. And I think that, you know, that's what will ha- I don't think this will pass, first of all, and not in an election year and not at a time when they're talking about decreasing the tax credits and all that. So I, I just think that it's a, a Important, you know, when you, when you say that during session the legislators are not able to campaign, this is their campaigning, right? Uh, so they're, you know, they're, they're, they're not campaigning, but they absolutely are campaigning and they're sticking to the things that they've told their base. So this is the way to keep, I tried, I tried, I went hard, I did it, you know, so they can come back and they can say, you know, I was there fighting for it and they just wouldn't allow it. So that is the campaigning that they're doing right now, and he obviously is doing that again,
1: Brian. No one, I don't think has struggled as much as your former boss, Governor Nathan Deal, with how to resolve what I believe to be a sincere belief by people who want to restrict adoption, who— I'm not—I mean, I think they're—personally, I'm sorry to see it. I guess they believe it sincerely, but your boss struggled with that mightily.
3: He sure did. Let me take you behind the scenes a bit. I mean, he is now 77, 78 years old— Southern Baptist, so he is culturally, he is personally inclined toward protecting religious expression. I mean, it was something he really struggled with. I think in in a broad sense, he believes people need those protections. Where where he ended up landing was, well, those rights are already protected, and what this seems to do is send the signal that we're not welcoming, send the signal that we're open to discrimination. So that's where he he really is as much as anybody Somebody who really was torn. And I did not know the day he vetoed that bill. I already left the office. I was watching the live stream because I honestly did not know at that moment what he was going to do because I had heard him express both sides through the years. And uh, on this, I think you have a handful of legislators who care passionately about this. They are religious conservatives. I do believe that they are sincere in their beliefs. I do think that they believe they're doing something that is right by their Christian faith. I don't think that there's widespread support for it, even in the rest of the Republican caucus. I don't think they want that on the floor. I think we're past the tipping point on LGBTQ issues where there's no longer a built-in majority for for efforts that would, that would alienate them in some way. So... I don't see this going anywhere. It's something that is interesting, and therefore will get news coverage because it's it's one of those explosive cultural issues. But I think the coverage it gets, the attention it but, but gets, Brian, quickly
1: outweighs its chances I, of passage. I'm sorry. But it could stop the broader bill to ease yeah, the ability yeah. of people the issue. to yeah. adopt. Yeah. And you have all these uh, children in frustration. By the way, James – I think it's important to point out it's the LGBTQ community, which certainly is upset about this. And the focus of most of the news stories is about uh, LGBTQ adoptions. But that's not just what the bill would do. I mean, Brian talked about the Christian community that supports this effort. I'm Jewish. It is conceivable you know, under the terms of this bill that if my Jewish wife and I want to adopt a, a child from a faith-based organization, they say, well, you don't believe in Christ and we're not going to give you the baby. <laughs> yeah. This bill, my understanding at least, until someone explains that I'm wrong, would say they have the right, right. to do that. And I'm also the probably the only person in this room who thinks
4: there will be something on social issues that will pass because to me, the, the, the theory I have on it is that there is going to want to be. There's going to there's going to be a need for legislators to do something other than cut the budget, uh, there, and and this co- costs no money to pass. So I mean, no state money to to pass some kind of a social issue statement. Um, so it would not. Uh, I'm not saying this is the bill, but. The, it wouldn't surprise me if something did pass. And I
1: do want to be careful because, Brian, when you talk about your former boss, the governor, uh, uh, vetoing a religious liberty bill, it was not the same bill that no. relates to abortion adoptions, but it was certainly a, a comparable measure that dealt with the whole question of whether we should be passing religious liberty measures, right. Kevin. We should also point out that the people who support this kind of legislation are the people who for many years at the Capitol have stopped a hate crimes law from being implemented. Because they have refused to allow for uh, protections for LGBTQ uh, citizens of the state, they don't want to codify uh, them in any way. And Chuck F. Strachan faced that issue as a Republican when mm-hmm. he tried to pass that measure last session. I-, I
2: hope that you let your wife know about these adoption plans before you <laughs> <not sound laughs> there. <right? laughs> but aside, aside from know. that, I mean, I like to connect the points that Mo and, and James made, which is it's a it's like a campaign thing, right? They got a problem. Yeah if they go back to campaign and all they can talk about is how they didn't save the programs that were so important in their district they got to have something point. to talk about great, yeah. and that's the politicking go ahead
0: I just wanted to because I see the clock and I want to say this that um, you know Attorney General Chris Carr you know is um, letting uh, Governor Kemp know just how expensive voter suppression is and asking for more money you know to be able to fight all these cases record number of cases that are coming down over right. the prior election right. so right. you know he's finding out that you know purging votes voter suppression is expensive
1: Mo ivory gets a point in a lick at the end but you're not finished Mo ivory you've got about a minute to answer a question in my i cannot let this, this show go Without asking you about what is now the apparent outcome of the Iowa caucuses, where Joe Biden, the favorite of so many Georgia Democrats, Mm -hmm. could be on the ropes, fourth place finish in Iowa, not having very energetic performances as he courts voters in New Hampshire. If this campaign turns south and Joe Biden is no longer a viable candidate for the Democratic nomination, what the heck is going to happen to all these Georgia Democrats like Keisha Lance Bottoms who've lined up with him?
0: So I mean it's early, and uh, I know there was a lot of I was uh, tweeting. I mean I was texting back and forth with a a campaign staffer of Joe Biden's when Iowa, the night of Iowa was going on, and um, you know there was a lot of angst. And um, I think that it's really too early to say what will happen because we're just in a climate where you know we know anything can happen, right? And that's how we you know have our president right now. So I think it's too early really to say that. I think people should be concerned. I'm not saying that I haven't heard conversations and concern, but I still think it's just way too early to say that he's completely out or that, you know, Bernie is in or that uh, oh, Warren is in. Absolutely. But just I think there is cause to be concerned. But
1: Brian, Kevin, James, there is a lot of focus of attention right now on the lack of energy, the poor performance finish in Iowa. And there are people who are saying, does Joe Biden really want this or not? And whether he's the best candidate or not, a lot of Georgia Democrats have staked their their uh, futures in terms of presidential politics on him.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I I think too. The other thing that I noticed is as you dig into the numbers on how it played out in Iowa, there were just a lot of numbers that didn't seem to be good for Biden. Okay, in terms of how it broke,
1: so. we're we're virtually out of time, Brian. You happy about the way the Democratic primary seems to be unfolding right now with it looks like we could be waiting for a long time to get a nominee as a Republican? Do you think that's good for your side?
3: I do. I think that Donald Trump comes out of the impeachment trial in the
1: strongest position of his entire presidency. There you go. Brian Robinson gets the last word. For those of you who say we don't respect Republican thinking on the show, you got the last word today, Brian Robinson. Um, We're out of time for today's Political Rewind. We'll be back tomorrow with another show at 9 and at 2 and on TV at 7 tomorrow night. I'm Bill Niggett. See you tomorrow.